0: quote a home and car bundle today at progressive.com progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with progressive between june 2021 and may 2022 potential savings will vary you're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down if anything you could probably use a few more hours in the day that's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in slack
1: Everyone, you're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Mee.
2: I'm Felix. And I'm me here.
1: I'm excited to talk to you guys tonight because we decided we wanted to talk about comebacks. Yes, Woo-hoo. companies comebacks. trying to make a comeback. <laughs> By the way, do either of you have a personal comeback story that we can use to get ourselves warmed up for this topic?
3: <laughs> you know, I confess <laughs> I feel like there's an arc to my entire life, which is I get myself in a hole. And then I fight back. Mm, You know, I like to get myself in a hole and then try to fight back.
1: Well, you've done really well (laughs) because you're definitely not in a hole now.
3: Well, but I do recall a story that I sometimes tell my daughters probably incessantly, which is I vividly remember the first semester of my Ph.D. program and I was woefully unprepared. And the first midterm I took in that program was the Mm -hmm. graduate level Mm -hmm. microeconomics midterm. And I was so out of my depth. I
1: can't even imagine Oh, my God.
3: It was really bad. And the kindness that the professor Drew Feudenberg showed me when I went to talk to him about it was something I would never forget. Oh, he could have been wow. like, yeah. "Drop yeah. out now, man. It's yeah. over." Yeah, he was like, "It's okay, you know. You just go try harder, and wow. you'll be okay." Wow. wow.
1: Did you ever drop him a note later? You know,
3: I should. Yeah, you
2: should. Yeah, I'll never
3: forget his kindness in being like, "You can keep trying, and it'll be okay." Mm.
2: I love that story. I find that generally to be true. Mm. Like I have this emotional roller coaster when teaching doesn't go well. Right. Like I walk out, it's just like oh my God, what was it doing? Mm-hmm. And it grows in my head, like this big problem. And then when I'm back in the program with the students It goes away away. magically, Mm. just like you reconnecting with Drew. Exactly.
3: And you kind of get
2: out of your own head. Yeah. So true. Yeah. Yeah. Personal comebacks are hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. by the
1: same token, corporate comebacks are also hard. By the way, how'd you like that segue? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And so we're going to try to talk about some companies that are trying to make a comeback. And then, Felix, you also brought in a second topic. Uh,
2: Yes. I would love to hear a review of these generational stereotypes. You know, when we say millennials are like this or generation so-and-so is like that. I wonder how you think about that. Mm. And I'm
3: delighted that there's such a diversity of generational perspectives on the show. Because I obviously will be providing the Gen Z perspective.
2: Now that we know you wear easy-peasy reading glasses. I'm putting on my easy-peasy reading glasses as we speak. We don't really need a generational stereotype to make fun of you. (laughs)
1: Okay, company's trying to make a comeback. Felix, what did you bring in?
2: I was thinking about Hertz, the mm. rental car company. Yeah, oh, well, In part, it's one. such a fascinating story because it touches on so many things that are happening in business these days. Yeah. So you remember they went bankrupt in 2020. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it's a story of just many management mistakes. Okay. So, for instance, they doubled down on sedans right at the moment when everybody wanted to rent an SUV. They had this brilliant idea, once they were in some financial difficulty, to keep the cars longer than the traditional 30,000 miles. I don't know if you remember, you would rent like a car that was just like, what happened <laughs> to this vehicle? <laughs> and then they acquired Dollar and Thrifty, mm-hmm. expected about $100 million in synergies and cost went up by about $70 million as a result of the acquisition, that $20 billion of debt. And of course, that was the kiss of death, as my good friend, me (laughs) here, likes to remind (laughs) us, that is risky. So that's the story into the bankruptcy. But then what happens once they filed for bankruptcy is equally interesting They become very quickly one of the first meme stocks and they started issuing equity. By the way, and issuing equity while going through, through the- bankruptcy. Yeah. Yes. And then the regulator stepped in, and then they had to stop. So then a consortium of investment firms become interested. They offer $5 billion for Hertz's asset. And then there's competition out of the blue, mm-hmm. where a second consortium enters, and they have this totally fascinating auction where both camps submit essentially- bits that cannot be compared because there's so much financial <laughs> engineering warrants on one side <laughs> cash on the other side but the consortium that's led by Nighthead, they eventually went out so it's about at a 7 billion dollar valuation and creditors were fully compensated in cash yeah can you believe that and then of course The last headline that I'll mention, which is like a crazy story also, is this announcement that they bought 100,000 Teslas. And apparently Elon Musk was really aware that they did this. So, on so many dimensions, just like an incredible saga.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and you forgot to mention that they have signed a new deal with Tom Brady, the quarterback, (laughs) to be their new spokesperson. So, look... All of this is some combination of financial engineering and biz dev. None of this is operational. In other words, you know what's easy? Announcing that you have a new deal with Elon Musk. Announcing a new brand spokesperson in Tom Brady. Announcing that you have this deal with Uber to rent drivers their cars. You know what's hard? Fixing your business, (laughs) fixing your operations, fixing your service, fixing your value proposition to consumers. Mm -hmm. They're talking about everything but that. So I am very, very cynical about this company. If you think about the announcement that they have this deal with Elon Musk for 100,000 cars, and then Elon Musk coming out and saying, well, we've signed nothing. And then you realize what they meant by that is that they're going to go to the Tesla website and click 100,000 times. (laughs) That's essentially what they meant by that. I think it is very difficult for me to assign any kind of credibility to anything this company does. But on the other hand, all of the stocks in this space are starting to become so memefied, if that's a word. Right. So Avis stock has been all over the place and Hertz is now IPOing.
2: Yeah. So they're mm-hmm. issuing equity. Exactly. And interestingly, the proceeds don't go to the company, the proceeds yes. go to those investors. Exactly. I think the share price has doubled since August or something like this. And yes. in fact, there's a little bit of a stock buyback by the company. So it's just like they're cashing out as quickly as they can. Yeah. The
1: fundamentals are so meaningless here. And so I'm just very cynical about it. I'm sure Mihir is going to have a much more positive. <laughs> just no. judging from the expression on his face right now.
3: I think the thing about this story that I love is what you started with, which is it's just a crystallization and a manifestation of so many things going on in the world mm-hmm, today. Mm-hmm. One example, which is in part the way that all the creditors got out whole and the equity holders did okay is guess what happens to used car prices in the middle of the pandemic? And the answer is they go through the roof. What does Hertz do? Benefits enormously because they start liquidating used cars. (laughs) And that turns out to be this massive boon. And then on top of it, you have this memification of stocks, and then mm-hmm. this seeming coincidence between making an announcement about buying a bunch of Tesla cars, and then two, three days later, announcing that shareholders are exiting. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Yeah. you know, yes. even to my jaundiced eye, feels like wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, having said all that, I actually like the brand.
2: I think it's an interesting
1: company. Wait, you're going to defend the company now? Having no, said all
2: no, no, that? no, 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 no. I'm not going to defend you the company have or the fond memories from way back when. No. Well, so yeah. it
3: just happens to be that I rent cars pretty frequently and it happens to be convenient to me to use hers.
2: It's a terrible process, Mihir. You've gotten so used to it. I know. Oh, uh, my have become so
3: inured yeah. to it. But, you know, look, I think it's all shenanigans and it's all the stuff you guys said.
1: Even if you don't think the business is fully broken, it is so anachronistic. If you think about the process by which customers book rental cars... Pick up their rental cars, drop off their rental cars, completely anachronistic. And the pricing tactics continue to be so sketchy, honestly. But
3: who's doing it better?
1: All I'm saying is if you really want to stage a comeback, it should be an opportunity to wipe the slate clean right. and to rebuild your business right. in a way that reflects the kind of company you want to be. And
2: that's not what you see
1: yeah, here. Yeah, I totally yeah,
2: agree. And think about the investor's exit. The CEO is an interim yeah. CEO. <laughs> yeah, Of course, that constellation, you don't get much forward-looking behavior. Right. I have to say at the same time, I would really... Dislike it if they change the process that you use to pick up the car because it's my only chance in life to see a matrix printer at work.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's excellent. It is yeah. special. Okay, so it sounds like three thumbs down on this particular <laughs> comeback right. effort.
3: All right, good. Young me, what do you got?
1: So I am going to take this conversation in a different direction. Do you guys own any Crocs? You know the <laughs> oh,
0: shoes. Oh no! The Crocs.
1: Yes. Okay. You say that. Shoot me. But the other day I walked in and <laughs> my husband had <laughs> on a pair of Crocs, which I hadn't seen him wear in years. Mm-hmm. And guess what? I'm still married to him.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you are just a very tolerant person. I mean, no, there's no, no, other no, way no, no, no.
1: It. So here's what's fascinating about this company. Crocs got started about 20 years ago, and as you guys probably recall, in the mid-2000s took off like a rocket, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, started to flame out in the ensuing years. So by 2016, 2017, it really became a punchline, and you would see someone wearing Crocs, and you thought, oh my God, that person has just given up on life, (laughs) okay? (laughs) So... This new CEO comes in, Andrew Reese, and since he's taken over, a few things have happened. Mm -hmm. The first, obviously, is the pandemic, which created a context where we cared less about appearance and more about comfort. So that was helpful for Crocs. So they capitalized on this. So just to give you an example, in the toughest months of the pandemic, every single one of the top 30 footwear brands experienced a decline in sales growth except for Crocs. Wow. Mm. But even before the pandemic hit, crocs had already begun to reposition itself as a cool ironic fashionable product Hmm. and it did so primarily by streamlining the company's core competencies to focus almost exclusively on marketing so for example it shut down a whole bunch of its retail stores and decided to rely more heavily on amazon or tmall and other sellers It stopped trying so hard to diversify its product line and sell boots and all these other kinds of shoes and decided instead to double down on the classic clog. And perhaps most importantly, with respect to marketing, what they've done is rather than fight the reputation it had for being ugly and clunky, it has totally leaned into its reputation for being weird. Just a weird, weird brand. Mm -hmm. And the centerpiece of this has been a series of collaborations. So, for example, they've collaborated with Justin Bieber and Post Malone, which maybe isn't that surprising, but they've also collaborated with the band Kiss. (laughs) Some of the brands they've collaborated with include Balenciaga, with which they produced a pair of $850 Crocs that sold out immediately. But they've also collaborated with Hidden Valley Ranch, (laughs) which produces salad dressings, KFC. I mean, it is so fun. So last year, revenues hit an all-time high of $1.4 billion. That's an all-time high for them. And by the way, they're also selling like crazy on the resale market, like their limited edition Crocs. So it is so fun to watch.
3: You know, I confess I don't own Crocs, but I kind of buy your enthusiasm, young me. I mean, I kind of like the idea of this brand reinventing itself. And it seems like it's partly design-led, but to your point... It feels like they're leaning hard on the marketing piece of it. And those affiliations are bizarre and you would have never expected it. So I think it sounds super fun. I mean, the concern is how do you sustain irony? Irony is a complicated position in a marketplace to be ironic in that way and like keep being ironic. Mm -hmm. I guess the concern I would have or I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about is is it like a one-act thing? Or is there another act
2: there? Yeah,
1: let me get Felix in first, and then we can talk about that.
2: So I'm a little more skeptical. I never really know. If you tell me, here's a list of collaborators, KFC, KISS, Justin Bieber, that sounds to me you're throwing a thousand darts at a wall and hoping that something will stick. And if sales move in the right direction, we call it brilliant and say, oh, my God, amazing, you saved the brand. If it doesn't work, we would say, KISS, KFC, and Justin Bieber, you got to be kidding me. That was so confusing to customers that could never, ever have worked. So how much of this is sort of exposed rationalization? Yeah. And how much is it someone sitting down thinking about what people really want and then hitting the nail on the head? So, number one, these things do operate
1: in cycles, right? So, we may see another flame out in a couple of years. So, this is absolutely a roller coaster ride. Right. And, you know, for the most part, any fashion brand that operates on the edge of things, in other words, there are evergreen fashion brands like Uniqlo, for example, that has evergreen types of fashions. But if you're operating on the edge of anything you are signing up for a roller coaster ride. right? Mm -hmm. And the Mm -hmm. bet you're making is that you can stay ahead or on pace with culture. That's the bet you're making. But the second thing I think that they're doing is also something we should be paying attention to, which is the most interesting consumer brands out there are the ones that are really exploring and stretching the boundaries of how we think about branding. And so one of the rules of branding has always been that when you brand, there's a cohesiveness in what you do. So if I'm going to Mm -hmm, choose, for mm -hmm. example, a bunch of collaborators, they should all fit together. It shouldn't be a game of which one of these things doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. And yet, in this case, what they have glommed onto is the fact that that kind of cohesiveness maybe has been overplayed and that there's an underlying brand personality that you can begin to demonstrate by being wildly inconsistent in a consistent Mm -hmm, way. And so this is a brand that has decided to build its latest brand chapter on the element of surprise, Mm -hmm. on defying your expectations of what they should be doing next. And so I just find it absolutely delightful to watch, in part because they might Not be able to pull it off if you put it.
2: (laughs) I like the idea of describing this as you're making this bet. And because you're living on the edge, you don't really know, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? That I find very intuitive. But say, I show you what they did, but I don't show you any of the financials. Can you look at what they did and say, this is a smarter bet than some other bets that brands have made?
1: I don't think you can to answer your question, Felix, but I do think, again, part of the cost you pay for operating in this space is that there is always some serendipity involved. Mm -hmm. And so part of what you're doing is you're signing up to play in a space where you're relying on some combination of strategic planning and some combination of serendipity. And that's why brands that operate effectively in this space, it's less important that they are proactive in their planning and almost more important that they be reactive to what happens to the stuff they throw Mm -hmm, on the wall. mm -hmm, So you're throwing mm -hmm. stuff into the culture and so much of your marketing energy is designed to react to what
2: what seems to work. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so it's a
1: very, very different. Yeah. And I know it's weird to think about it this way, but it is a kind of core competency yeah. that they're signing up for. Yeah, yeah. Are they going to bat 1,000? For sure, no. Yeah.
3: I also think it's fascinating, young me. You've used the word fun a couple of different times now, right? Yeah. Like fun to watch. So fun. And, of course, that's true for us because we like business and we think it's fun. But I think there's something interesting happening at the customer level, too. It's fun to watch. As a customer, I imagine too. Like, what are they going to do next? Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. there's something about that part of what mm-hmm. they're doing, you know, which to your point, Felix, would you recommend it ex ante without knowing how it worked out? And I think part of what I hear Young Me saying is, that's what makes it fun to watch because they're breaking the rules. Yeah. And maybe yeah. it's working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if it's working, right. but it is going to be really fun to watch.
1: Yeah, and then the one other thing I would layer on top of that is, you know, we often talk about businesses specifically, but then we talk about whether or not something is good for the overall health of the economy. The mm-hmm. three of us, we talk about mm-hmm. that yeah. all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And in the same way, my brain sort of operates that way when it comes to the health of our cultural economy. And so from a cultural economy perspective, I consider it to be a healthy thing when you see companies out there thriving by doing things at the edges, things that are pushing the boundaries of how we think about creating consumer resonance. Mm-hmm. And so I look
2: at a company like this mm-hmm. as being delightful mm-hmm. from a mm-hmm. cultural standpoint. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, interestingly, maybe it is not so different from some of the successes that feel planned. Mm. I mean, it's not as though Sam Walton sat at his table and imagined a $600 billion corporation that would operate according to the principles that we now from Walmart. Exactly. His problem was he was in Bentonville and (laughs) P&G wouldn't send a truck unless you buy much more than your little store can possibly buy and so you build a warehouse and then since you don't really have access to capital it's a good idea to locate many stores relatively close to that warehouse and before you know it, there's a certain logistics that then creates the company that we now know as Walmart. So maybe this is more often the case than we like to admit that our exposed rationalizations are great at understanding the business logic of what people have done in business. There are maybe not particularly accurate prescriptions of how you stumbled across something that works And then the real genius is in once you stumble, you recognize what it is and you make it repeatable. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think that's right. I mean, think about all the cases we teach where the students come up afterwards to you and say, well, but was all of this planned? (laughs) (laughs) Did they have the foresight to see how this would all play out? (laughs) You know, so it's always some combination. Mm -hmm. The one other thing I will say is that we talk about value creation a lot and there are very few companies out there that manufactured for lack of a better word joy this mm-hmm. is a joyful company mm-hmm. yeah if mm-hmm. you spend some time in the Crocs universe today in 2021 it's a company that markets with joy yeah they interact with their consumers with joy their social media presence is very joyful so everything about it there's a really positive energy and that's a very different kind of value creation I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. in this very cynical world we live in yeah. I just find it to be delightful yeah. fun that's great fantastic. So interesting. yeah great Okay, Felix, you wanted to talk about generational stereotypes? Yes.
2: I mean, we all know the stereotypes, of course. Boomers, ambitious workaholics that ruined life for everyone else. (laughs) Millennials, the tech-obsessed narcissists that won a trophy for everything. Generation C, the coddled snowflakes who are scared of adulting, (laughs) there's like no shortage of describing the various generations in the most not-so-nice way. And we've all been teaching for quite some time. Do you see any of these changes in your students? Do you think the way they express themselves, does it remind you of some of these stereotypes? Do you see changes over time?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think there are two questions embedded in what you're asking. One is, do they match the stereotypes that you described? And Mm -hmm. there, I think my answer is mixed. Are they different than the generation that I taught 10 years ago? Yeah, I think they are. They feel really different. Yes. I
3: mean, I think the hard thing about these conversations is these are totally arbitrary characterizations and constructs. Basically, they're caricatures. And like any good caricature, they are kind of false, (laughs) because they exaggerate some tendency. But there's a kernel of truth in that caricature.
2: I have a similar experience seeing some changes. And one of the things that I think is so incredibly important about what you say here is, is this something generational or is it just because people are younger? Yes. And when we were at that (laughs) step in our life, we were exactly like them, except Mm -hmm. it's been a little while ago and so we forget. But it's definitely the case, and you must see this too, when you read about people in companies who feel super uncool given the next generation at work. Say, (laughs) I think, how you use or don't use emojis changes like just in interesting ways where for one generation it's this great discovery to signal emotions. Other generations use it more in an ironic manner. What's your advice if you feel... Out of place if you feel uncool in a particular place.
1: So, this strikes me as being somewhat new. So, it has always been the case that the social hierarchy in a professional setting has been correlated with your degree of experience. Now, that's not always true in non professional settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in the workplace, it historically has been the case that the more experience you have, the more social status you have, the more deference you get to be the recipient of as a result of that experience. <laughs> yes. And one thing that does strike me as being somewhat different, you hear executives talk about this all the time, about being intimidated yeah, yeah. by some of the most junior people in their organization to the point where you have many companies now hiring generational consultants to <laughs> yeah. come and help them understand the psychology of their entry-level employees. And I think that does feel very different And on the one hand, I do feel like it's incumbent upon every generation to try to understand other generations. And so if you are Mm -hmm. of an older generation, it's incumbent on you to really try to understand young adults and vice versa. But it feels a little out of balance right now.
2: Yeah,
3: I love that idea of being in touch with the next generation because it's their world more than it is our world. (laughs) That was something my father would always say. I confess, though, the whole generational consultant thing – There's something about that which just strikes me as shtick. There's these (laughs) newspaper articles. They're basically got a lot of quotes from companies you've never heard of. And they're like, and I didn't know how to use this emoji. And Mm -hmm. I felt like a really stupid person. And then the generational consultant comes to the rescue. I don't know. It always feels a little bit like clickbait. Uh But there's a seeming greater pressure now. Mm -hmm. And I think there's two theories about that, at least two theories. One is, I think, what we started with, which is, just literally the psychographic distance between the older generation and the younger generation is somehow greater and i just don't understand them because they're so weird and it's more weird now than it ever was before mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i wonder sometimes about this peculiar moment we're living through and labor market dynamics and other things that are happening that makes this more of an imperative so maybe it's not the psychographic distance maybe it is man there's a war for talent young people are hard to hire They have grown up through the pandemic. They have very particular ideas about the way work is structured. And I need to grow and we need to hire people. And so I have to cater to them.
2: So do you think it's transitory? I don't know. I wonder.
3: Like I hadn't really thought about it much, but I kind of wonder, is it really the psychographic distance, Uh which is one possibility? Or is it this very peculiar moment where labor markets are very hot? We're questioning a lot of things in society and culture generally. And that has come to occupy our imagination more than ever before. But, you know, in five years, if that all changed <laughs> and mm-hmm. labor markets aren't tight anymore, I'm not so sure hmm. people are going to be falling all over themselves to understand mm. the next generation in the same way. I don't know. That may be cynical. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I don't know, here, I tend to think it goes deeper than that. Mm-hmm. In companies today, the ability of a younger generation of workers to overtake corporate culture quickly, I tend to think it's stronger than it has ever been before. And one of the reasons for that is our tools for communication are really geared to that younger generation. So consider what happens, for example, when a company decides to adopt Slack as a tool. So Slack takes over. And there is a cadence, of velocity of communication, there's a particular vernacular, there's a particular style of communication that is Slack appropriate, and there's a kind that's not. And if you are of a generation where you cannot adapt quickly and become part of that, you can blink, and then overnight, the culture of the company is dominated by the conversation that's happening on this medium that you don't really have access to because right. you're not on it enough. You don't know how to keep up with it. And so if you can't plug in, then I think you are disadvantaged. And so I think there's something a little bit more fundamental that's happening with respect to how people communicate inside organizations. If you think back twenty years, even when email became a thing at organizations, mm-hmm. it flattened organizations. Your ability to be able to email two layers up, that sort of changed everything. This is that to the nth degree
3: now. I think that's really interesting. Yeah I framed it as either kind of like psychographic distance or labor markets. And your story I think is more subtle. It is the nature of communication and technology which yes. allows an outsized valence to A younger population in creating cultural norms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that's super interesting. And I think that could be true, for sure.
2: And it sometimes leads to interesting misunderstandings. So, for instance, all the Facebook scandals that the Wall Street Journal has covered in the last couple of months or so, many of these quotes come from the internal communication system workplace. Mm -hmm. And the interpretation, in particular, I think in political circles, is often that, oh, this was written by someone in the organization, so it must be true. But what's, of course, true for workplace is that anyone can chime in <laughs> yes. on anything that happens. And yeah. it's like a Slack conversation where mm-hmm. it's often casual, it's often outsider opinions, and it doesn't come with this sense of corporate structure. And that's hard. <laughs> (laughs) for us to grapple with in particular when we then think oh my god someone wrote it it's there in writing and that takes on its own significance
1: I also think that one of the values that has been embraced by this generation is the concept of doing the work associated with understanding different segments of people Hmm. and if you haven't done that work and it manifests in the language you use, in your tone, in how you would address your corporate teams, then I think you run the risk of losing credibility very quickly inside your organization. And so I think there are many, many cases where senior executives run the risk of alienating large swaths of the organization by just not knowing how they should be communicating. And I don't know if a generational consultant is the answer, like you, that tends to make me cringe somewhat. But I do think there's more work required to be an effective communicator and leader inside an organization.
3: Yeah. What I worry about sometimes is that we're falling prey to exactly the kind of monolithic view that these stereotypes set you up to think about. So when I talk to students about some of these issues, for example there's a lot more heterogeneity Mm -hmm. in the way people are talking about things. And part of what you observe because of these natures of communications, because of the technology, is that voices that are particularly ardent are going to be heard. And I also wonder if what is happening is that our characterization of that younger generation is somehow skewed by precisely your point about the technology and the nature of communication because we are hearing from a subset that is vocal and is ardent. Do you know what I mean, Young Me? I do,
1: but honestly, I don't know what the solution is. So right. is the solution to continue to just go along and assume that there will always be a segment of people really alienated by the way you're communicating? I don't know if that's the answer either. But here's what gives me hope. What gives me hope is you see some of the best companies out there are figuring it out. They are figuring out ways that they can disagree with each other, ways that they can continue to be respectful for each other, ways for different generations of employees to thrive Mm. together. And then there are other companies that seem to be completely dysfunctional. And so I don't think it's an impossible thing. I do think it's difficult to pin down exactly what best practice companies are doing and how they're doing it. But I tend to think that it begins with, for lack of a better word, a generosity of spirit with respect to how people listen to each other and engage with each other. And that can't be unhealthy.
2: One pattern I see when I speak with executives who find it hard to break through to younger generations is that they're doing everything at scale. So when I asked them, give me some examples where you feel like you had a point of view and you communicated it clearly, but somehow it just did not resonate. And the examples is I was on Zoom with like a thousand people and (laughs) or I like a communique that was translated into fifteen languages. And I think developing a sensibility for other generations is cultivated in personal conversations. Yeah. Among senior executives, I think many lack the practicing ground to really good at figuring out how do you get through, Mm. how do you express themselves, and it's not something you learn at scale. It's
3: a classic problem, right, Felix, which is it's the problem of the bubble that you surround yourself with and Mm -hmm, the people you surround yourself with. I mean, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but one of the things you're forced to do if you're a teacher or professor is you have to interact with young people. (laughs) You have to. (laughs) And it's great, but it's hard and it forces you to, right? So if you're a senior executive, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think you can create a bubble where you don't talk to 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds and you talk to a bunch of 50-year-olds. And that Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with any other thing. It's just really unhealthy.
1: But think about our experience in interacting with large groups of young people. And all of us have had situations where we have stumbled mm-hmm. and for the most part I think I speak for the three of us when I say that the response from the group has almost always been constructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They might push back or talk to you afterwards, but it mm. always comes from a place of respect and it always comes from a place where they're trying to build a bridge mm-hmm. and they understand that you've been trying to build a bridge. And so it's fine.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think what's fascinating about what you're saying, Young Me, is we're trying to locate the problem with young people. Mm. Maybe the problem is the older generation who's so risk averse about making mistakes. Yeah. And in fact, there is a lot of generosity of spirit in the world. Yeah. And the problem yes. is really the caution is. and the risk aversion yeah. that older people have which is actually causing the issues, you know, as opposed to just engagement with good spirit, which has got to be the right answer.
1: When you have been confronted directly by someone from a younger generation, what's the tenor of those encounters?
2: I feel the hardest part of this conversation is exactly what must be hard about young people when they get stereotyped by generation. So say if the tenor of the conversation is... You're white, you're male, you're old. That is sort of the lens through which everything gets communicated. That I find not so easy to deal with. There's not that generosity of spirit that you alluded to earlier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a difficult conversation to have. But I also have to say, to your earlier point, it happens so rarely. It's so uncommon. Yeah. Much more common
1: is someone saying, Did you really mean to say that? Did I hear you correctly? Because I was a little uncomfortable with this. And Mm -hmm. you're really given the space to explore the idea more deeply in a way that you can find common ground and make sure that the bridge that you're trying to build with whoever it is you're speaking with remains intact. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. So much to think about.
1: Yeah, I know we're running out of time, but that was interesting to think about. Thanks, Felix. Yeah, Very good. Mm Okay, recommendations. Felix, what'd you bring?
2: I have a website or an app that I would recommend. It's called My Climate. And it helps people assess how much carbon your activity costs. So, for instance, you can put in, you know, what's your heating system like? Do you heat with oil? Do you heat with gas? And then you can see, what if we use 10% less? Would that make a big difference? So, say, if I fly, I fly economy, I fly business, would that make a big difference? And the website, I think, which was also great, it then allows you to buy offsets if you're so inclined. Yeah. But even just the educational aspect to go, you know, how do I commute? What's my work like? What's my house like? It's really fantastic. Mm, so that's My fantastic. Climate, really quite nice.
3: It's myclimate.org. I'm just taking yes. a look at it, right? Yes, yeah. exactly.
2: Is it yeah.
1: super user-friendly?
2: Yeah, so it looks you like click, it. Yeah. you see like six, like seven totally. categories. This is
1: interesting.
2: And then you can really go down the rabbit hole. Yeah. But the way it's built is
3: really nice. That sounds like a great rabbit hole. <laughs> so
1: I have a somewhat strange recommendation. So my recommendation is a book or any book like the book I'm about to recommend. So the book is called In Case You Get Hit by a Bus. How to organize your life now for when you're not around later. Um, And it's one of many books of this sort that just help you get organized for death. (laughs) You know, in case. So that you're prepared for the unexpected. And the reason I wanted to recommend this is this is the time of the year where I kind of do a personal audit and I actually keep a regular living document that's called just in case and all my kids have a copy and it's different than the kind of reflective emotional piece you write to oh, your loved mm-hmm, ones for after mm-hmm. you're passing. This is totally pragmatic, which is here are where the bank accounts are. Here's who to call for this. It's just a very, very pragmatic thing. And every year mm. I go through and I just update it. And it's the kind of thing that everybody puts off all the time. But if you are one of those people, then it can be helpful to get a book like Mm
0: -hmm. in case
1: you get hit by a bus. And it helps (laughs) you manage everything from your passwords Mm -hmm. and your bills and just everything. So my recommendation is this book or a book like it or to do something that will help you get organized. And And it's
2: so easy to put off, right? It's so easy. I love
3: that idea. It's so easy, as Felix said, not to think about it, but it's critical. Yeah. And
1: you have a recommendation?
3: Yes, I do. You know, now that we're leaving the pure Zoom slash COVID world and we're re-entering the real world, the question I have asked myself is what part of that Zoom life am I going to actually bring into the real life? Hmm. And I have found the thing that Has persisted, something I picked up during Zoom life and now I use all the time in real life. And that is for teaching, but it's general, it is Notability, the app. uh I just love Notability. Hmm. And it's a note taking app. I now teach at the law school completely with Notability. And I just love it. And I don't use the boards. And I have so many different documents that I'm switching in between that it is absolutely fantastic, way better than using the desktop. And I have found it kind of revolutionary. I thought this was a temporary Zoom solution. Uh And I've just come to find it to be fantastic. Now, in the HBS classroom, I still use the chalkboards because it's different. But man, as a note-taking app, it is spectacular. And it has survived the pure Zoom phase of my life. (laughs) 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 And it has persisted into my current life. Hmm. You know, there are others, and I know people like Evernote, people like a lot of these different ones, but I got to tell you, notability is totally bankable. Hmm. This has been something that I can really see being part of my portfolio of like pedagogic and tools forever. Mm -hmm. But
1: outside the classroom, do you use it for... I do
3: it less outside the classroom, but I do it there too. But particularly in the classroom, absolutely. Do you take notes,
2: Youngmi?
1: I don't, but I forget everything. (laughs) (laughs) I do have lists. I keep a mental checklist in my head of things I need to do, but I often forget what's on my list, so I'm a mess. If you're a mess, I'm a total disaster. (laughs) Okay, so that's it for tonight. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.